Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Traditional, because it's the traditionalist. The traditionalist aspect, even if they, well, we'll see. And this week we are going to talk about Donald Trump. We've been circling around him for a while. And I think we're going to jump right back in. It's like if you say it before the show starts, you can't say it. You can't again. say it again. It's, it's, like it's, yeah, yeah. it's like a depletable. Well, it's response. gone. Once I say something, I, I can't <laughs> yeah. recall it. Yeah. I've used uh, it. True. I'm joined by Aaron Rapport, our resident expert on American foreign policy, and by Andrew Preston, who is a preeminent historian of American foreign policy and of the United States. He is the author of Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, which is the definitive history of the role of religion in America's experience of war and diplomacy. And so we are going to talk about Donald Trump, religion, war, maybe, we'll get on to Korea a bit later, and diplomacy. That would be the Book of Revelations part. <laughs> Let's start with religion, because we, I think we're conscious on this show, and, and Trump has a lot to do with this, actually. I think with maybe other American presidents, we would have got to religion by now in our endless obsessing about, is he different? Is this a break from the past? And we've never quite got there, so we're going to tackle it head on with Andrew. The basic claim of your book is that you can't understand American foreign policy without the role of religion. And you tell that story right up to Obama. So it is sort of the question that lies behind all of our discussions about Trump, which is, is he some kind of dramatic break from the past? And from my sense of it, in this area of American political life, he is a break. And maybe I'm missing something. You're going to tell me what I'm missing. I don't see religion as the driver. I mean, we'll get on to the war on IS and Islam and other kinds of populism. But if you look at Trump, do you need religion to explain what he's doing? No, not at all. And I wouldn't say that religion has been the driver of American foreign policy in any era for any president. For some presidents, it's been more important. For other presidents, it hasn't been that important for someone like John F. Kennedy or Richard Nixon, it was completely unimportant. And for some presidents like Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, William McKinley, it was extremely important. For George W. Bush, it was really important. For Donald Trump, it isn't that important. And it isn't a driver of his foreign policy. And I think we can understand Donald Trump's foreign policy without necessarily the religious impulse that comes from within him, without understanding his own religion. And yet religion is a key part of his politics. And if it's a key part of his politics, then it has to be a key part of his foreign policy. So with Donald Trump and religion and foreign policy, we kind of have to come at it indirectly. Okay, so if we pick it apart, let's do the key part of his politics bit first, and then we'll come back to foreign policy. Where do you see religion helping to explain the Trump phenomenon just in political terms? Well, just in political terms, in terms of his populism, how Donald Trump appeals to religion is very much an aspect of his traditionalism, a very modern kind of traditionalism, where he's looking back to a past that, you know, to make America great again, to a past that didn't really, I think, ever exist. It's kind of a modern construction of what the past was. That's a, a central part of evangelicalism. This so it's a kind of revivalism. Is it's a revivalism. It it's a revivalism in both senses. And his style is very revivalist. If you look at politicians like Barack Obama, who made a really strong self-conscious effort to appeal to evangelicals and used evangelical phrases and quoted from evangelical songs, from song lyrics, and quoted from the Bible and invoked theologians, he still didn't really have that connection with evangelicals because of a style, because it was dry, it was scholarly, it was lawyerly, whereas 
Donald Trump doesn't bring any of that to his speeches, really. But his style really does appeal to evangelicals. Because it's odd, because in a way, if you, I would say that you look at Obama and there is something of the sermon, you know, those rhythms. He has that kind of preacherly quality to him. And I, a, I, I totally understand what you're saying about the connection with Trump. But when you look at Trump on the stump, he, no one would mistake him for a preacher. I don't. It depends a, on the type of preachers you're looking at. So okay. if it's Obama, it's a mainline, you know, establishment congregationalist or Presbyterian minister, not a preacher, but a minister from a type of church that has seen catastrophic, existential losses of congregants, and where a lot of these churches are struggling to survive. And those are the churches that were the big powerhouse churches of the mid 20th century, of the early 20th century, going back to the 19th century. That's why they're called mainline churches. But if you look at Donald Trump, if you look at him before he even says anything. He is a prosperity gospel preacher. He is a televangelist. His style, his style is he has a background in professional wrestling. That style is also very similar to televangelism. And he has that style in the way he speaks and the themes he touches on. Obama would explain, whereas Donald Trump emotes and he says things that really, just in one or two words, will touch a nerve with his listeners in a way that either provokes them to rage or provokes them to rapture. And... It's a very strong part of his appeal, but it's not just traditionalism. He also very self-consciously makes appeals to certain aspects of evangelical policy desires, uh, what they want America to look like, how they want America to change. And it could be about immigration. It could be about religious freedom. It could be about uh, sexuality and the politics of sexuality. Donald Trump is very good at either sending dog whistle signals that evangelicals understand or of just coming right out and offering a policy initiative in a way that... If he's similar to another American president, he's similar in that sense to George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan, but he's much more elemental than they were. And I would say, aside from saying much more elemental, he's much more sectarian in a way, in that he really is appealing to a Southern evangelical sect that is nervous about its place in American society in terms of its demographics? Is it declining relative to other religious sects that are not only perhaps non-evangelical, but non-Christian, non-white, et cetera, et cetera? And so this also taps, and I think oftentimes, to what Trump is good at, which is the Jeremiah, right? America's in decline, and we need to make America great again, right? We're in decline. Why are we in decline? Well, we've basically strayed from following law and order, which is not a necessarily new Republican message, right? Nixon is the first kind of real modern law and order Republican president. But even though he doesn't really couch this in religious language, it is a theme that is easily recognizable, I think, by a relevant audience that makes up a lot of Trump's base. That's absolutely right. And sectarian... I stole your thunder, didn't I? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean it's, you're absolutely right. It's, he's sectarian in a way that presidents haven't been since the 19th century when anti-Catholicism was not just acceptable, but it was reputable. It was, in fact, for almost any politician, it was part of the standard political yeah. rhetoric was to denounce popery and that sort of thing. And Donald Trump is not just in relation to Islam, but in relation to lots of other religious people in the United States and certainly to religions outside the United States. He is deliberately divisive. And you can see this in his every president these days has a, a religious advisory council. They have an economic council, they have all sorts of different advisory councils. And they're mostly symbolic, but the president does meet with them every now and then. And Trump has a religious advisory council like Obama and Bush and Clinton did before him. And unlike any other president before him, it is comprised exclusively of evangelicals, not just of Christians, but of evangelicals. And yet before the election, we were told 
evangelicals might have a problem voting for a man who, whatever he says, does not behave and has not lived in the way that many of them think a decent human being should live. And leaving aside, I don't think we're ever going to know what he believes in his heart of hearts. But how has he been able to negotiate the gap between, so he's the kind of preacher who shows up in your town and sells you a new religion, but he's also just a straightforwardly 21st century business commercial huckster. And he leads a New York life with New York values. And that's not evangelical values. Well, they are kind of in a strange way. Yeah, because most, not most, but a lot of, it's hard to generalize, but a lot of evangelicals have that background. They have that past. They could be somebody like Chuck Colson, who worked for Nixon, went to prison and found God, and then became a major evangelical leader. It could be like a Jim Baker, the televangelist who was disgraced in the 1980s for financial and sexual scandal, who's now, once again, a major evangelical leader. But Trump doesn't do that. So Trump hasn't got that kind of, I sinned and now I've been saved. He just carries on sinning. Exactly. He's still at the sinning part. But the thing about Trump that that I think gets him off scot-free, in this sense, is that he says that he understands evangelicals, and he doesn't pretend to be an evangelical. So George Bush Sr. did, Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton would famously come out of a Southern Baptist church clutching a Bible with certain pages dog-eared, and you know nobody really believed that he was actually reading it. George W. Bush was an evangelical and did speak that language, so he had that connection. But Barack Obama made great lengths to reach out to evangelical audiences. So did Hillary Clinton. But nobody really believes them. Donald Trump doesn't do that. He doesn't make that language. He doesn't say, I'm one of you. But he does say, I understand you. I get you. You're outsiders. You're persecuted, just like I am, just like people like me are. You're not respected. And I'm going to stand up for you. And I believe in, and this gets back to the traditionalism, I believe in the aspects of evangelicalism or Christianity or whatever of religion that are part of the very fabric of what it means to be an American. And that's what evangelicals see as under threat. And along comes Donald Trump, a guy who has this great charisma and this way of speaking to them that that they're used to from their own leaders. And he says he wants to make America great again. And he wants to make America great again in the same kind of way that evangelicals appreciate. And I think for a lot of evangelicals in their heart of hearts, they think that eventually Donald Trump will follow that arc, that trajectory of a Chuck Colson or a Jim Baker or someone like that. Good luck with that. And and the other aspect of uh, evangelicism in in the United States is you have to remember, uh, people will insist, right, that the Constitution is a biblical document, that the United States is sort of a covenant with God, right, that it's a city on a hill. And for somebody like that, right, they don't want, even though he never really did this, they don't want President Obama going out and apologizing for America. So actually the idea of somebody who is going to be confessing his sins all the time and confessing the sins of the country and apologizing, for them, it's the last thing that people under threat who have this mindset of, of the United States being a primary inter Paris amongst all democracies, the last thing that they want. They want somebody who's going to be a tough guy and never back down and never admit when he's wrong and never say that he's sorry, right? That's, that's appealing. And you have to also remember that there's kind of two strains of concern conservatism in the United States. There's the, well, there's more than that, but I'll, I'll simplify it way down. There's the economic style of conservatism, and then there's the more traditional authoritarian nationalist style. And if I had to uh, guess, and I don't really because I've seen the data, so the Southern evangelicals are, are tan. They're traditional authoritarian nationalists, right? And they want tough guy, as I've used this phrase before, daddy president to protect them. So that doesn't overlap very well with somebody who's going to say, I'm sorry that I, you know, promoted gambling and had multiple wives and ignore Tiffany, Tiffany who? So 
It's and they're anti-statist too. Yes. I mean, there's a very strong strand of anti-statism in evangelicalism and in Christian conservatism, a fear that the government will regulate all aspects of American life, especially religion. That's what brought evangelicals in the 1970s and early 1980s into the Republican Party, and they've been there ever since, and they don't always get what they want, but they've played a key role in sort of pushing the Republican Party. Not the only role, of course, there are other conservatives, as Aaron just said, but they've played a really important role in pushing the Republican Party in a certain direction, and one of those directions that I think has been most pronounced has been anti-statism, and that's where another issue where or area where Donald Trump and evangelicals converge. So to bring it back then to the question of how America projects itself abroad, there is an obvious tension in that, which is that people who wish to cut the federal government down to size also often want the United States to be powerful on the world stage. And there are interesting histories of 20th century America, Ira Katznelson's fear itself, which tells that story about the sort of the way skillful politicians like Roosevelt were able to exploit that tension. You, you don't think you want the state, but you do want a strong military. And as a result of that, you're going to get a strong state at the back end. So there's that tension in his support. But also he himself seems completely or has seemed conflicted on these questions. He ran as someone who was not a sort of crusading, make America great again by taking on the world. He was about pragmatic foreign policy. He talked about the mistakes that had been made, wasting money, wasting resources overseas. And now he's turned much more into, back in Afghanistan and elsewhere, someone who believes that America is to be judged by its ability to assert itself. Which one is the the real Trump here? Or do we not know? If I I could answer which is the real Trump, who's the real Trump? I mean... Yeah. But he ran on one and he's governing as another. I mean, in lots of respects, he's carrying on as president as he was as a campaigner, but not in foreign policy. Yeah, that's true for a lot of presidents too, though, right? The presidents who campaign on one thing, Bill Clinton saying it's the economy, stupid, he's not going to be waging wars, and it was going to be time for a peace dividend and retrenchment at home. And, you know, he waged war more often than most presidents in American history have. George W. Bush campaigned against nation building, explicitly against nation building, and then, of course, went off and tried to rebuild Afghanistan and Iraq, two of probably of the easier cases of potential nation building in world history. That often happens with, with presidents. With Donald Trump, what's interesting is he keeps contradicting himself or disagreeing with himself. Or th- it's his habit of thinking aloud as he's approaching a big, not just foreign policy, but any kind of policy initiative, like with DACA, where he kept giving signals. So just remind people who aren't yeah. familiar with this, this is the program that basically gave an amnesty to... I'm going to take a flyer and say deferred action for childhood arrivals. Very good. Did I nail that? Oh, good. You did. I think so. So, Okay, you tell us what that means. No, no, I'm done. No, it means... You're on the hook now. No, yeah, I should just keep your mouth shut. Don't volunteer, Aaron. Yeah, so DACA is a program designed to allow... People who are, who are not U.S. citizens, who are not born in the United States, but arrived in the country undocumented as children. So they've really never known any other country as the United States as their home to allow them to work and to allow them to go to school, to go to higher institutions of higher education. So universities. Yeah, I mean, and that's the key, right? They could go to college. Right. That's one of the key things. And so there's estimated around 800,000 of these individuals. That's, that's the, the extent of my knowledge. And Trump gave the signals that he empathized with him. He was going to protect them. He was going going to maintain DACA, um, although it's not really up to him to maintain it or not, but it's up to Congress. Well, it's interesting, right, because it was an executive order and the Trump administration has 
claimed when they were trying to get his executive order through the courts on the ban on people from um, six totally arbitrarily chosen countries that had nothing to do with Islam, when he was trying to get that through, that basically the executive branch had almost unlimited authority when it came to how it was going to execute immigration policy. Mm. I think what it does now is it puts these people back in limbo, the so-called dreamers. But Trump gave signals that he was going to protect them, and then he, he hasn't. And he's sort of given immigration policy over to Jeff Sessions. And he hasn't because he is answering to whom on this? So well, I think to his base, I would say. So it is the base. It's, right? it's to his base. And also it's it's a tricky thing because, right, there is a, a lawsuit being brought by the state of Texas. And it would put Trump in a very awkward position because on the one hand, as Andrew said, he had sent a lot of signals saying that he was going to continue this policy because he empathized with people who had come here not of their own volition, right, as as children. And on the other hand, his base, which is pretty much hardline anti-immigration and it's usually the number one issue that Trump voters would list uh, when they asked, you know, why are you supporting Donald Trump for president? So rock in a hard place, but he's probably going to kind of outsource this to Jeff Sessions and try to be as behind the scenes as possible when it comes to adjudicating this issue. His base is all he's got now, right? I mean, he can't he can't really ignore... 35% approval in Gallup last night yeah. checked. And evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, despite his, as you were saying earlier, David, despite his own lack of faith and his own personal history. They supported him more than they have any other president in, as far as we know, statistically, going back to polling. I think it was 81% white evangelicals, I should say. Most African-American Christians are would be classified as evangelicals. So we're talking white evangelicals. So 80, over 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That's more than they voted for George W. Bush, who was in the mid-70s. It's more than they voted for Ronald Reagan, who also had lived not a very Christian lifestyle, didn't really have conventional Christian beliefs through his wife Nancy, dabbled in astrology, and was beloved by evangelicals because he had the same ability as Donald Trump to sort of speak their language without being one of them and without claiming to be one of them. Reagan famously said to a group of evangelicals, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And just that simple phrase just touched a nerve with evangelicals in a way that I think Donald Trump does. But without that base, because of his dwindling support among everybody else, Donald Trump really doesn't have a whole lot. So it's impossible to imagine Trump saying that, what Reagan said. Because it's too... It's, well, it's too, it takes the focus off him, right? Yeah, to, that's true. It's, it's not narcissistic. It's kind of <laughs> modest. Yeah, that's And right. they love him all the more. That's right. I thought you were going to say it's too artful, and it's too, it's a nice turn no, of phrase. I think he, no, I think he has some nice turns of phrase, yeah. but he doesn't do the, um, it's not about me, it's about you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. So I want to ask a kind of question now of comparison here, because there are two sides to this, one of which is you're describing Trump responding to a base which is very much to be understood in religious terms. And immigration is absolutely a central issue for these people. And in responding to them, he's doing some of the things that we're seeing him do this week. But immigration is also a central issue in European politics, which does not have religion in many cases 
underpinning it. UKIP is not a, unless I've missed it, and I may have actually, it's not a religious party. So there's that on the one side. But then on the other side, some of the people that Trump often gets compared to, the kind of populist authoritarians, Modi, Erdogan, even Putin, religion is in some ways more central to what they are doing, not simply in terms of the people who support them, but how they construct politics, how they imagine their role at the head of the state. It's a religious version of politics. So Trump is somewhere between the two of these things. I'm trying to sort of place him. There are crossovers with more secular European politics, and then there are crossovers with what are essentially religious populist movements. Where do you put him in that? I mean, there's a further fly in the ointment in that a lot of evangelicals, certainly evangelical leaders, were lobbying Trump to protect the dreamers and to not sign this executive order. Um, And there's been a lot of coverage in the news in the last couple of days where they've said, we tried, we understand some of where he's coming from. We tried to protect the dreamers. And what we'll do now is sort of move forward and try and work with Congress in a way that will provide a just solution. So there's a kind of weird amalgam if we're going to call Trump's politics, you know, it's often called populism, if we're to call it Trumpism, which I think is more accurate because it's a variant of populism that I don't think is exactly replicated anywhere else. There are elements, you know, that we find in other countries, but nothing exactly like Donald Trump. I mean, he really is, I think, unique. I don't want to fall back to American exceptionalism because it's always been a very lazy explanation for what happens in America. America's just different. But with Donald Trump, you're allowed to. Donald Trump, I think you are allowed to. I think we finally reached that point (laughs) where Donald Trump is, is the legitimation of American exceptionalism as a kind of analytical category. But I just go back to um, his appeal to religion and where it is in his politics. It's that traditionalism. There is that kind of Bannon strand of Western civilization under threat, Judeo-Christian civilization under threat from the barbarians. And that's that's a variant on Putinism, isn't it? I mean, that's a bit where it does clearly connect and the the way that Islam is described in that rhetoric does have strong echoes of, say, a kind of Putinist Right. And Donald Trump has even this. said that, right, when talking about ISIS. Imagine if the United States and Russia teamed up against ISIS. Imagine what we could accomplish or something to that effect. No, absolutely. And to go back to a point I was making about kind of traditional authoritarian nationalists, I think if there's one thing that Donald Trump really does overlap with an Erdogan or a Modi or, or a Putin and why he admires certainly openly, Putin at least, is just the personal kind of tough guy projection, which I think also appeals to a certain stripe of religious person. And here's the thing about religion in America. The Bible and and really most books of faith are ambiguous enough and broad enough that you can project pretty diverse viewpoints onto them, right? Is Islam a religion of peace? Yes, absolutely. Is it a religion of war? Yes, absolutely. It's a religion of war. And the same with with Christianity, too. Can you use Christianity to promote the abolition of slavery? Yes. Can you use it to justify slavery? Absolutely, you can, right? It depends on where you look. And so sometimes I wonder if Pardon me now, Andrew, because now I'm like taking a almost direct swipe at you. I wonder if religion is in a way a window dressing for people's kind of deeper personality types, right? So if you are just kind of an authoritarian person who is 
very sensitive to perceived threats in your environment, it's nice to be able to find some divine justification for what might otherwise be seen as a rather self-serving, cowardly policy of, right, I just don't want brown kids who are five years old when they came to this country around anymore. Uh, they built walls in, you know, the Old Testaments, and so, okay, so God's behind me. Uh, sometimes I wonder if it's just a lot of BS, basically, uh, that, that people just need this, this stuff to justify what otherwise would be kind of moral unjustifiable. So was that a swipe at me as uh, an authoritarian? No, it was more of a swipe at you as a Canadian. No, it was it was more it was it was it was more wondering right exactly how fundamental religion is and how much religion sometimes just serves as a rhetorical device, right? I mean, but that the Southern Baptist Church really didn't. It's like, okay, we've got a bunch of slaves. That doesn't seem like what Jesus would do. Oh, well, well there were the Canaanites, right? Okay, so it's God's got our back. But whether um, so if it's mere if it's mere rhetoric, you know, to put quotation marks around it. Uh, or if it's just politics, or if it's just a justification, that in itself is also important. Sure. I mean, that's hugely important, because especially in a democracy where a leader has to couch things in certain ways in order to appeal to people, that is crucially important. And I think you're right when it comes to Donald Trump. A lot of what he says when he uses religion is that kind of dog-whistling signaling to a certain type of American. Sometimes it's actually with Trump, it's not even a dog whistle. No. It's not even a sort of secret signal. It, it's very sectarian. It's deliberately divisive in a way that mobilizes his base. It takes the politics of a of a Mitch McConnell and takes it to the sort of illogical extreme. But that in itself, I think, is is really important. And if we look at Donald Trump historically, something like the Judeo-Christian tradition and Western civilization and that sort of thing, that concept wasn't, it wasn't invented by Franklin Roosevelt, but it was invented in the 1930s and early 1940s. There was no such thing as the Judeo-Christian tradition in the United States, at least, before then. And FDR really embraced it with gusto because of what was happening in Europe in the late 1930s. And he wedded it to progressive politics, to liberal politics and to New Deal politics. And Harry Truman continued that and sort of accentuated it. And so for the duration of the Cold War and really up until Ronald Reagan, so almost the duration of the Cold War, the Judeo-Christian tradition or so-called tradition, because it wasn't much of a tradition, meant pluralism. It meant that the United States stood with religious people against the forces of irreligion and that it was a binding force that would keep Americans together and that would give Americans some sort of common cause with other people of faith uh, around the world. Under Ronald Reagan, that Judeo-Christian tradition still was that to a certain extent, but then he turned it on its head and moved it away from liberal progressive politics to conservative politics by saying that within the United States, there were no longer people who believed in America's Judeo-Christian tradition that went back to the founding and went back to the Puritans and all that sort of thing. And so he used it as a kind of wedge in American politics to divide liberals who didn't really believe anymore, so secular humanists and that sort of thing, from the real Americans who did believe in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And what Donald Trump has done is take that almost even further as a kind of wedge in world politics, in, in this kind of Steve Bannon, as David was saying, the Steve Bannon defense of Western civilization against radical Islamic terrorism, against IS, against all sorts of forces that would challenge that Western civilization. So to go back to where we started, is Trump then a break? Because... It's a bit of both, clearly. There is there is a history here to this sort of way of thinking about what America does in the world. As a, it's a kind of crusade for, for right. And yet, when Trump does it, it provokes a lot of people to say it's a complete abandonment of the American tradition of how you build a coherent policy in dealing with the rest of the world. And it is in a way, isn't it? It is a complete break in a way. So it, whatever echoes it has of previous 
crusades for the good and defenses of the Judeo-Christian tradition and we are the people on whom Western civilization depends, dot, dot, dot. It does feel like something completely different when Trump says it. Absolutely. And it's in how, as you said, that it's a crusade for the right or for right, but it's how you define right. And it's what you're crusading for. And that's very different with Trump in substance and then also in style. And it goes back to the anti-Catholicism of the 19th century, but even when anti-popery was at its height in the 1840s, 1850s, in the 1880s, 1890s, and the United States was fighting wars against Catholics in Mexico and against Spain and Cuba and against the Filipinos in the Philippines after 1899, there was no sectarianism coming out of the White House to explain this. The people who were couching those wars in anti-Catholic terms were very much from the bottom up. They were preachers around the country. They might be some journalists. But the White House was very careful, um, and the State Department was very careful in not saying this is a war against Catholicism, even a type of Catholicism, whereas Donald Trump is doing that with Islam. And it's something that definitely has echoes in the American past, but it is something that's new. And is the other difference the kind of allies that he then makes in this fight? Because I think for many people, what's most shocking about Trump as a president in global terms, is his complete indiscriminate willingness to say of Duterte in the Philippines or of Putin or whatever, they're on our side. And I take it that for many Americans, including presumably some people in his base, that's really uncomfortable. Mm, I can imagine, yeah. But he does it. <laughs> he does it. He embraces them in a way that even in, you know, in the Cold War, the United States would cozy up to dictators, but they wouldn't embrace them. They would say they will reform over time and, and we'll help them be democratic and we need them against communism. But they didn't And it's part them. of that th- thing that you know, with Trump, there is no prospect of salvation. It's not like he's going to embrace Duterte or whatever because he's going to bring him over to the side of the good. He's just... He's celebrating He's his... just going to say, I, I think this guy's doing a good job. He's no, doing a great and it's, job. And it's a naked endorsement also of, of aggression. There is that striking interview with Donald Trump where he was being asked about things that Putin had done in Russia and he said of the United States, oh, you think we're so innocent? And again, that wasn't like a left-wing critique. I mean, that wasn't Noam Chomsky talking there, right? That was, right, being a hard ass gets things accomplished in international politics. And that's actually kind of true, but at the same time, it's usually not something that you embrace as a commendable trait. Certainly not the president. Not the president. So I think we should talk about Korea. To finish, sure. right? Aaron, where are, where are you on that then? How's how's that going? Not well. Um, so, as people have been following the news know, there was uh, pretty recently a thermonuclear test, allegedly, by the North Korean government, although it could have been a non-thermonuclear test. I don't think we actually have the uh, data necessary to confirm that or not, though we know seismographically it was a very large explosion that took place, and that was uh, adjacent to a missile test that flew over Japan's airspace, over Hokkaido, uh, Japan, and that was the first one of those, that is to say, to cross Japan's airspace in about two decades. And this is coming very close to South Korean U.S. military exercises. So everything is very tense on the Korean Peninsula. And you have a very, uh, let us say, unnuanced war of words going on between uh, Kim Jong-un and the Korean state or the North Korean state on the one hand and Donald Trump on the other. It's not very clear that there's a lot of coordination going on between Trump and what uh, exists of the State Department at this moment in time regarding the messaging on North Korea. Uh, Victor Cha, who actually is a a professor of international relations at, at Georgetown, was just 
nominated as uh, the ambassador to South Korea. It'd be good if we got somebody in there at this point in time to kind of get a, a coherent message going and get lines of communication going. And there's been open criticism by Donald Trump of President Moon of South Korea for wanting to pursue two diplomatic an approach saying that it borders on appeasement. Oh, and at the same time, we've also, uh, the Trump administration has been talking about pulling out of our free trade agreement with South Korea, which is kind of a bizarre thing to do at this time of crisis. So we have a situation where tensions on the peninsula are incredibly high. The United States who is the third party mediator, <laughs> if you will, or at least not really the mediator, but the chief backer of South Korea doesn't have a coherent diplomatic message and is in fact splitting, the president is splitting with the South Korean government on more than one front here, which would make them, that is to say the South Korean government, worry about our commitment to them and the alliance. And so you have a lot of room for miscalculation because it's very uncertain exactly how strongly the United States has South Korea's back. And, and North Korea also can make a mistake of, of saying, well, if, if the United States isn't strongly backing South Korea, what room do we have here to maneuver? We could be heading for Did some... I make that too cheery? <laughs> <laughs> I feel better. I feel better now. Good. We Nothing left be, to lose. We could be heading for a real constitutional crisis because you're right. Donald Trump is dividing the U.S. from South Korea, but he's also dividing the White House from, as you said, the State Department, the Defense Department. And we could be heading for a situation in which American security and defense and diplomatic officials are faced with a situation where they're not sure whether they should carry out the president's orders if North Korea doesn't attack first. And I can't think of a situation in American history, at least in a major instance, in which the president is given a major order and officials have refused to carry it out. There were times during the Nixon presidency when Nixon was of uncertain mental stability. Right. During the Watergate crisis, he was drinking a lot, and Kissinger refused to pass down orders from Richard Nixon, and other officials did as well. Mm -hmm. We could be heading for something even more serious than that. Because in the Korean War 60 years ago, the central tension was between the White House and the military command. So it was sort of Truman, MacArthur. Sorry, and I'm going to get pedantic. Yes, it was between Truman and MacArthur, although the Joint Chiefs kind of were so, I think, cowed by MacArthur that they were very unwilling to put a, a leash but, on him as well. But nonetheless, so that was the fault line. That's not the fault line here, I don't think. I mean, the fault line here, as you say, is, is the American state, including the State Department and the White House, with the general's divided on this? I mean, some of them are presumably quite keen on Trump's bellicose rhetoric. I think that they seem to be a lot of generals. I would say McMaster, from what I know, from what I've been reading more so than anyone else in the Trump administration, has been a real hardliner on North Korea, but not to the extent that he's going as far as Donald Trump, where Trump is intimating that there's going to be preemptive war or some sort of American first strike, or we're not going to allow this to happen, dot, dot, dot. And if you're going to say something like that, you know, the only way of enforcing it in this situation in the Korean Peninsula is not diplomatically, it's not economically with sanctions, but it's militarily. And I'm not sure that McMaster is going is going that far. What Donald Trump does is he seems to think aloud. So like with the free trade issue with South Korea, something seems to come to mind when maybe he's watching Fox News or something, he gets upset about something, he tweets it or he says it immediately without really thinking about it, without checking with anyone else, because it seems to take everyone else in the administration by surprise. 
And then they either have to follow him or a lot of times they don't. And they say, like Mattis has been doing, Tillerson's been doing, they say their own they say their own things. And that's a really dangerous situation. But don't you think there's still a gulf between that, watching Fox News, getting provoked and tweeting, and taking a decision to go to war? Even for Donald Trump, there is a difference. One thing you can do impulsively, partly because it doesn't necessarily, it has consequences, but it doesn't bind you in the moment to a sweeping course of action. But even Trump, presumably, gets the difference between that and going to war. It's true. But instead of sending a tweet, he could then, after watching Fox News or or something else, he could turn to McMaster or he could call up Mattis and say, do this. And they say no, because he sends the tweet and there is no one. And they say no. And then something happens. And maybe he then gets angry and whatever. But there is a difference. It's I totally agree. agree. What's so striking about Trump's presidency is how much he does clearly without consulting anyone. But you cannot go to war without consulting anyone because Trump's not the one who's going to be invading. Well, I think in person. (laughs) No, Uh, that actually might win the war. Yeah, I'd like to see him. I would like to see right, uh, him and Kim Jong-un hand-to-hand combat, you know, just uh, as, as champions for the respective sides. That would be way more efficient. Um, and I would pay to watch it on television. A lot uh, of people would. Uh, many, I think and be, Trump would promote it. That's, that's right. That would be like the UFC boxing. Um, <laughs> <Precisely>. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, I, I think actually to go back to this theme of coherent messaging, perhaps the biggest concern is not what Trump is going to do, but it's what U.S. allies are going to do now that it doesn't seem like there's anyone at the steering wheel Absolutely. anymore. Again, to reiterate, Seoul is about 20 miles away from hundreds of Korean artillery pieces, North Korean artillery pieces that can reach it from just outside uh, the DMZ. Chemical weapons, possibly biological weapons, right? Japan has had you know missile overflights of its territory. And what has kept that area of the world of East Asia peaceful since 1953, or relatively so, is American power deterring further North Korean aggression and kind of providing a moment of pause for the Kim regime, as well as providing reassurance to, to Tokyo and Seoul. If you don't have that, right, then all of a sudden there's too many moving parts for me to offer a good prognostication of saying, you know, I think this is going to be the outcome, but I can say the variance of outcomes of what can happen increases tremendously, which is to say it could range anywhere from the status quo where you're just kind of continuing along trying to wait out the Kim regime and see what happens to first strike U.S. nuclear war to the South Koreans mistaking uh, something on their command and control monitoring system as an incoming artillery barrage and, and responding in kind. A lot of stuff can happen now. And most major wars, if not the ultimate cause, the kind of spark that gets them started is a bit of miscalculation where tensions are very high. And, you know, in the Tonkin Gulf, some some sonar men imagine torpedoes in the water that aren't actually there, things of that nature. And so one very last question. So if the United States can't play that role, can China? China is trying to play that role. China and Russia as well are trying to fill the gap, diplomatic gap left by the United States. Putin saying the other day that he didn't think sanctions were going to be effective. China telling everybody to calm down. But it's not a role that they are used to playing. And certainly, I don't think South Korea and Japan (laughs) trust China or Russia to nearly the same extent that they had trusted the United States. And North Korea, it's hard for me to see if they trust anybody. So they're not a substitute for the United States diplomatically in the region. So, Andrew, just to finish, do you have a sense that 
Mm-hmm. As a historian of the United States, you can tell a long story where there's a lot of variety, but there's also continuity, particularly through the 20th century into the 21st, about how America as the world's leading nation projects itself. That not only because of Trump, I mean, Trump is a feature of this, a big feature of it, but more broadly, that story is coming to an end. That it, it will quite soon be more important to understand the thinking in Beijing than in Washington. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I think it is Donald Trump. I think it is the Trump message, and it's what he's promoting, and it's the confusing message. It's not even make America great again or America first, but that it's he doesn't seem to know what he's doing, and his message sort of bounces all over the place, and he seems to be at war with his own administration. Administrations have been riven before by tensions, but not really to this extent where you have a president and then you have the administration and that's where the division is. Obviously, the world will have to consider what Beijing wants more and more and more. And I mean, that's been the case for the last couple of decades. But the fundamentals of American power are still, I would say, very sound. And I I can't foresee those fundamentals changing, not just in my lifetime, but in my children's lifetime. China is, of course, growing in power, but China hasn't faced its own reckoning. The, The Chinese Industrial Revolution has been on most measurements, more concentrated, it's happened more rapidly than the American Industrial Revolution of the late 19th, early 20th century in the machine age. And it's been much more rapid than the British Industrial Revolution. Those are the two other major big industrial revolutions in world history. And Britain, to some extent, America certainly faced a, a domestic reckoning. And China will face a reckoning because of rapid industrialization. And we'll see, we'll have to see how they deal with that. There are lots of other reasons why China's rise to power might not just be endlessly on an upward trajectory. I think if Hillary Clinton had become president or almost anybody else, America would still be the leading dominant nation of the world. I think Donald Trump, this is a case in history where an individual really is absolutely important and where he has done so much damage to that leadership. And maybe that's a good thing. It depends on your view of American foreign policy and the role that America's played in the world. I myself don't think that. I mean, I think it's a very bad thing if American leadership in the world, despite all its mistakes in the past, is damaged Irreparably, and I think Donald Trump is on the way to damaging it. And you say that as a Canadian. And I say that as a Canadian based in, in Britain. Thanks to Aaron and Andrew. We will continue this conversation, I am sure. If you would like to come and watch a live recording of this podcast, we are doing one at 1pm on the 23rd of September, which is a Saturday, as part of the Cambridge Alumni Festival. We're doing it in a big venue and there are a few tickets left. We'll tweet details of that at tppodcast underscore, or you can find out more at the Cambridge Alumni Festival website. Do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. I didn't know you were Canadian. Oh. No. <laughs> Despite your anti-Canadian swipe, prejudice earlier. That was a really ineffective swipe. <laughs> Let's talk about the War of 1812. If that was a swipe uh, as a Canadian, you know, saying that you just use religion as a cover for your vicious imperial impulses. That's right. That's, that's not right. what we're going to work on. Uh, I am uh, waking up from a long sleep because I travel back from Amsterdam and traveling always makes me sleepy. I was at, uh, is it the Rijksmuseum or Rijksmuseum? Yes. Right. Reichs. I thought it was Reichs, but then I was like, that's a little Germany, but then I was like, well, Reichs Museum. And I saw a painting there called The Threatened Swan. And it's a swan uh, with feathers flying, defending its nest from a dog, and it's making this very exaggerated pose. And I realized that's my dance move, The Threatened Swan. That's the move I hit on the dance floor. You should patent that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think someone did. Back I think somebody <laughs> did. Back in the 80s. It was actually like more like the golden age, so it was like 1600s, but yeah. Or, yeah. 
Right, okay, when you're ready then. Okay. Oh, that wasn't the show? No, mm. just no. Well, it will be part of it. I thought it was done. I thought it was over. Yeah, right. Good. <clears throat> right, how are we going to start this? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.